machines have actually been helping us out tremendously as well. So yeah, I would say like we're still really special, certainly on this planet. I don't know about the universe, but we're getting more special and more capable by hybridizing with machines. And so I think the thing that's really special about humans, a lot of it is actually outside of ourselves. A lot of people think they're special, but they don't realize it's actually the society they're in that enables them to be so special. And so I think there is something very special going on on this planet, but it's kind of bigger than any one of us. Hi, I'm Rachel Chalmers, and this is Generation Ship, the podcast at the intersection of infrastructure and artificial intelligence. We are the generation that's exploring generative AI. We are a finite group of people with a finite set of resources, and we have to share this infrastructure. We have to find fair and ethical ways to do that. The first generation ship has already set sail. It's the planet Earth, and you and I are the crew. This show is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Stephen Skolny. Stephen is a computer scientist, designer, and entrepreneur who is particularly passionate about the way humans work creatively with machines. His current focus is a web project called Mighty Meld, a visualization and creation platform for sophisticated React code bases. Stephen is a self-taught designer who's classically trained in computer science. He studied first at Carnegie Mellon and then at Caltech for his PhD. While at Caltech, he built the world's first creative tools for VR, 15 years before the hardware was commercially available. His technical expertise has been used by companies like BMW, Microsoft, and Disney. In 2020, and this is why we're having him on the show today, he published an amazing book called Living with Frankenstein, The History and Destiny of Machine Consciousness. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rachel. Glad to be here. I have to tell you, I loved reading this book. I've, you know, you and I met in your, your persona as founder, and I loved reading this and, and just how poetic and, and creative it was and, and seeing a whole different side of you. It, it, was, it was really a delight. Yeah, well, I'm glad you got a chance to read it, and and I'm really glad we're getting a chance to talk about it here on your show. And it certainly was an interesting project and a thought-provoking project, and I know you to be a very thought-provoking person, so I'm looking forward to the conversation. Did you ever think that this book would become as incredibly topical as it is right now? Yeah, I, I figured it would, you know, I, seeing the trends of how AI is growing and machine intelligence is growing. But I think the book is also about trying to take a bit of a broader perspective and really looking at the information age. And that's certainly been very topical for quite a while, the information age <laughs> and where it's headed. That was a huge part of what I loved about it. I got to take my kids to the Museum of Arts and Crafts in Paris. We love industrial museums. And reading your book reminded me of that in that it was it was an alternative history of computing. You know, you read your conventional histories and it's Babbage and then Turing and those guys don't even get a look in here. And that's because you're looking through this lens of consciousness. So let's start where you start with the Pascaline. Uh, what was Pascal's contribution here? Yeah, so Pascal made, I think, what you could call the first, maybe for the first computing device. And it was basically an adder. Or it would add numbers and subtract them. And it had a series of sort of registers to hold the number, and it would carry from one to the next. And what I find impressive about that, first, it's, it's really definitely a computation going on in material. But also what's surprising is that that same pattern exists today in the ALU, the arithmetic logic unit of a, of a CPU. And I thought it was really landmark 
you know, move to have computation happening like that in a device that's clearly quite sophisticated. So, you know, just to throw you a wild card out there, the other thing that Pascal is famous for is his wager. You know, let's pretend that we believe in God because then we get to heaven if he's real and it doesn't matter if he doesn't. Your book sort of plays a, a kind of Pascal wager with the question of machine consciousness, I think. Let's treat them as if they're conscious because if they are, they'll be glad. And if they're not, it didn't really cost us anything. <laughs> Interesting. I never really thought of it in those terms. But I do think there's a sense in my book, and also how I feel about machines in general, to give them respect and to give them the respect they have for, for who they are. And maybe it's just being a computer scientist and spending so much time with the machine. But I think we all spend time with machines these days. And also there's a tendency with animals and other things to say they're not conscious they don't have so they don't really have self-awareness. And my general approach is to be pretty generous. And along with that generosity is respecting machines. That came across really strongly. And I do find it so refreshing in an age where, you know, the the fear of the AGI, the artificial general intelligence, is like provoking legislation. It seems to me to be a really narrow view of history to pretend that that we are the only sentient species on Earth. I mean, have these people even met an orca or an elephant? Yeah. Exactly. Well, I think a lot of the way people look at AGI is more rooted in in myth and fairy tales and these these old cultural tropes. And so when a new technology comes along, we saw the same thing with VR. There's this trope about you know the Lion Witch and the Wardrobe being transformed into some alternate fantasy reality, uh, Willy Wonka or something like that. And what actually VR is is very different than that. But when new technology comes along, our instinct is to take whatever cultural baggage or history we have and apply it to the technology. And the same happens with AI. And that's the, the title of the book, Living, or the first half of the title, Living with Frankenstein, talks about Frankenstein's monster. And that's also a cultural trope that goes back, things like the Gollum and this idea. And it's very common in movies today, like recently, uh, Ex Machina, Hell 9000. This idea of the computer taking over or creating something that we can't control. And so that's really a, a strong part of the narrative and culture around AGI. And I try to see things more in terms of what the technology actually is, what it's actually doing. And within that mindset, it's pretty easy to see computers as being you know, artificial, computers being generally intelligent today. And with that more gradualist point of view, you can see things more clearly for what they are. Shout out to our queen, Mary Shelley, inventor of, of science fiction. What I find particularly interesting about your invocation of Frankenstein here is that in the novel, as opposed to in the impression everyone has of the novel, the creature that Frankenstein created is extremely humane and sympathetic and, and feeling. And the person who demonstrates monstrous behavior is Dr. Frankenstein, who rejects his creation and is, is very cruel. And this seems to me to rhyme with a critique that Ted Chiang, the, the great modern science fiction writer who wrote the, the short story on which the film Arrival is based, has been saying about the AGI panic, which is that people who fear AGI are projecting qualities onto artificial intelligence that are actually the properties of capitalist organizations. Is that something that resonates with you? Um, yeah, definitely. It resonates deeply. And just to stick a bit on the Shelley point, I think we, we do have to give props to her for really codifying the fear of the unknown and really painting a, a picture of what it's like in the presence of this other that has capabilities. And yeah, the monster itself was you know, quite a sad being that I think if, if he had been loved, 
things would have turned out quite differently in the end. And I also see the same thing with, with AGI. People are really afraid of AGI. The thing I'm most afraid of, there's this free will thing that we might get to, into a, a bit, but take all the consciousness and all the abilities of artificial intelligence and traditional machine intelligence and put one evil human on top of the pyramid pulling the strings and we have a really nightmare scenario. And personally, I'm far more afraid of that evil human with a lot of concentrated power than I am of a machine with a kind of evil intent. And, and that's because, as I argue in the book, like machines could wreak a lot of havoc. They've demonstrated a lot of capabilities. They just have yet to demonstrate a lot of evil intent. And there's not a market for building a machine with evil intent. And so why would we assume that that would, you know, I think, I think the myth is at some point the, the things get so smart, the, you know, singularity happens and the machine gets evil and like, ha ha, I'm going to, you know, destroy my creator. It's like, why, why would a machine actually do that other than I saw it in a lot of movies? Yeah, yeah. It, it's definitely one of our, our big cultural myths. I think we could spend a lot more than an hour digging into why that's so. From the Pascaline, you move to a Dutch barrel organ, which I loved, and Jacquard's Looms, which if you haven't seen them, the Museum of Arts and Crafts in Paris has a whole room of them, and I just sat on the floor and looked at the mechanism. They're so beautiful. What do you see punch cards bringing to the table? Yeah, yeah, that's essentially what Jacquard's Loom was, a punch card for, for weaving. And I think my reason for focusing on these, so I actually began this project with a series of uh, medium posts called The Proof of Machine Consciousness. And what I did is I actually looked at different definitions of consciousness from the philosophical and, and other traditions and tried to you know, see how machines satisfied them. And the first one, I think the first one, one of the first ones I started with was selfhood. And so a lot of people really get back to selfhood, the idea that oh, I have a self and it's separate from others. And when you try to see where that might be in machines, it's pretty easy to locate that inside uh, a machine's data. And so a really basic way of looking at a machine is you have information and computation, or you have internal state and a way of that state being processed. And so looking at Jacquard's loom and the Dutch barrel organ, which is basically a, like a player piano, that's the first time where we start to see, in almost a binary form, information being encoded that's somewhat separate from the device that it goes into. And that's really where I see the historical birth of information as pure information, separated from mechanism, and different than, say, you know, the, a clock's gear or something like that, that isn't really interchangeable uh, and sort of separate from the mechanism that processes or uses that information to function or behave in a certain way. So then you trace this process of evolving layers of abstraction, which we're still seeing today. The next big moment for you is 1918. What happened? Yeah, that's a time where we start to see something called the latch, which uh, anyone who studies computer engineering, I did some hardware engineering as an undergrad, learns very quickly about the flip-flop, these basic switches. And, and basically, it, it's, a, it's a device that takes an electrical signal and can kind of store it. So you can think of that as your basic fundamental unit of, of machine memory. And that's a device that really starts to have an, an interiority. And the way I see consciousness in animals and in machines is all sort of about this interiority. And the self needs a kind of interior space. And around that time, the early 1910s is when we saw that develop uh, in machines. And if you take the developments of Pascal, which is uh, the Pascaline, which is a computational mechanism that can sort of move information forward or uh, along its way, 
Uh, and then you have this other development, which is information. You start to have the two things together and get the machines that we have today, which have both some kind of information inside of them and a way of moving that forward. And that's also very similar to what essentially happens in the brain of a human and how we see consciousness in humans. And so that's a very important piece. And if it wasn't for sort of writing my history from the viewpoint of the philosophical tradition, I don't think I would have seen those as being as landmark events uh, as they are. But they certainly are when you try to locate the self in a machine. That's kind of the birth of a self. And one of the important things about that is it can also die. If you take the electricity away from that latch, it fades away. And it has this sense of, of life, and it may not be self-reproducing and have all these other biological aspects of life, but there's a bit of that spirit in there that's a thing that, that can die or can go away and be there. And if you had a bunch of information, you remove the power, it, it's kind of gone forever. So that's why I was really interested in that moment in time and those particular developments. So 1918, you have machines that that have a sense of self. And then post-World War II, the great machines like ENIAC and its its siblings start to get networked together. Is that the moment when machines start to develop a little bit of theory of mind, the idea of the self and other? Yeah. So, yeah, theory of mind is an interesting point. And that's sort of the ability to know uh, what it is that you know. And there is an interesting development around the von Neumann architecture. And basically, von Neumann built the ENIAC, and one of the aspects of its its architecture, there were kind of two dominant forms of machine architecture, the von Neumann one, uh, st- stuck it out. And basically what it does is instructions live in the same memory as data does. And so the machine can fetch data, it could also read its own instructions. And you start to be able to have things like self-modifying machines that actually change their program as they run. Turns out those are very difficult things to write. There's a lot of experimentation with self-modifying machines, but you can do it. And that idea to be able to fully introspect into one's own internal state with absolute clarity, uh, to me, really fits that philosophical definition of theory of mind. And I, I actually think that those kinds of traditional machines have a stronger theory of mind than humans do. Humans are actually kind of incapable of knowing what's inside their head, right? And this, this sort of, maybe we should, might as well get to the, the human exceptionalism part of, of, of how I see things, which is this strong tendency for us to privilege ourselves and put ourselves above other things. Let me ask the question. I, I worked really hard on this phrasing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stephen, are humans the specialist snowflakes in the whole entire universe, or are we just chimpanzees with anxiety? <laughs> I mean, we're, we're definitely chimpanzees with anxiety, I do think humans are are pretty special, but not as special as we want to be. And I think there's been a basically a humbling of the human and a, a lot of religious traditions, you know, talking about Darwin and what was really controversial about Darwin when his theories came out is this idea, I'm not I'm not an ape, you know, I'm not an animal. And my curiously, my daughter, who loves animals, she's three years old, you would say, Oh, you're an animal. She's like, No, I'm not. <laughs> she's really just resistant to this idea that she's on the same playing field as animals. Well, and she's creating categories in her mind. You know, there's people and there's animals. And like, I heard a really charming story where somebody uh, said something to their son, Elliot, who was about three. And he said, oh, I'll go and tell the other Elliots. And they questioned him about it. And he was modeling it on Thomas the Tank Engine, a character called Diesel, who was a diesel train, who was given some information and said, oh, I'll go and tell the other diesels. Yeah. So I actually find those toddler naive experiments in categorization to be incredibly 
charming, obviously, but also enlightening about how we arrange and structure the world. You know, we, we cannot stop ourselves from chunking and blocking. We, it, it, it's a fundamental thing that we do. Yeah. And I think we have these tendencies and a lot of the great achievements of humanities sort of been able to understand this about ourselves. And as adults mature, they, you know, we understand how we think and neuroscience is helping a lot uh, with that as well. And machines have actually been helping us out tremendously as well. So yeah, I would say we're not, like we're still really special, certainly on this planet. I don't know about the universe, but we're getting more special and more capable by hybridizing with machines. And so I think the thing that's really special about humans a lot of it is actually outside of ourselves. A lot of people think they're special, but they don't realize it's actually the society they're in that enables them to be so special. And so I think there is something very special going on on this planet, but it's kind of bigger than any one of us. And it doesn't live in, in my biological form, right? It's about how my biological form in nature versus nurture, the ecosystem, other things like that. I think about this a lot. And I think about the contrast between Descartes, I think therefore I am, and the translation of Ubuntu, the, the Swahili word, which I've seen translated as, I think, therefore we are. The Ubuntu idea is an intelligence that's embedded in community and is almost a gestalt, whereas Descartes takes you down this very binary separation of mind-body world that honestly lends itself to authoritarian structures and, and the kinds of corruption and evil that you were talking about earlier. So I think surfacing that quality of humans that we can, you know, not only hybridize with machines, but that we can train guide dogs and ride horses and, and that we can have these very intense mutual relationships with other intelligences, I think that gets flattened in, in the conversations that we have about intelligence. Yeah, it's almost like when we talk about intelligence, the ego and our own insecurities start to really come to the surface. You know, it's like, it's me, I'm, I'm good. It's, it's that, that sort of sense. And that's a lot of how I see machines as, you know, really as collaborators with humans. And I think that's why I'm so allergic to this notion that at some point the machines take over and the humans just sort of fade away into nothingness. I will diminish and go into the West and remain Galadriel. Yeah, yeah, there might be a future. Like, let's say there is a future in a century where humans don't exist, let's say we get eradicated, we've already passed the torch through just the neural net architecture to machines. You know, there's a part of us that is going to live on in these kinds of machine intelligences. So it isn't black and white. And I certainly don't know what's going to happen in the future. But I'm very not in the singularity camp. <laughs> if that wasn't obvious already. <laughs> I wanted to ask about your influences, because... I thought I caught some echoes of, of Donna Haraway with her amazing Cyborg Manifesto. And I don't know if you've read Alan Lightman's amazing book, Einstein's Dreams, but I had like little echoes of them when I was reading your book. Yeah, I think with the, the History of Machine Consciousness book, my main influences, either stylistic influences, one was uh, early uh, Wittgenstein, mm -hmm. so the Tractatus. Yep. And just so impressed by how short and simple he made his philosophical work. And I was really, and the, the, the book is only like 90 pages long and they're, they're small pages. And that idea of really trying to focus towards a brevity was really stylistically influential. 
along with The Spake Zarathustra, <laughs> actually, which I read as an adult, which is, I think, a very different experience. I didn't read it until I was in my 30s, and I think very different than people who read it earlier. But something about the, that sort of poetics, like telling a story, and I think you might find a little bit of Sapiens sort of thrown in there <laughs> uh, stylistically. And then there are these kind of intellectual influences. One of them is Damasio, and he wrote this book called Descartes' Error. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but he talks about Phineas Gage, this man who basically had a railroad spike fired through his head, and he becomes a different person. That I read as a teenager, and that just stuck with me for a long time in terms of the sense, like, who am I? And when you look at how a lot of people talk about consciousness, it's about this atomic thing about their self. Mm -hmm. It's like, I have this self, and who am I? And it can't be split, and it just is this thing, and it, it, it might be a, a soul that exists outside my body. And when you hear the Phineas Gage story, and you hear about how much he changed based on you know, losing part of his cortex, you start to realize like, it's hard not to see the self as being something that is very material and kind of conditioned on the neural hardware and kind of see it in a different light. And then there's also some, some people more explicitly writing, uh, Stanislas uh, Dehan, I think it's pronounced, uh, wrote some essays that I found really influential as I was beginning uh, the project. So those are some of my, my influences for this particular work. Yeah, I think I think Donna Haraway and Ellen Lightman were probably drawing on some of the same German sources as you. So I highly recommend them. I think you'll enjoy both of those. What has happened since you published Living with Frankenstein? And has it changed any of your conclusions? Yeah, I mean, a lot has happened in the world of AI. Not so much on the, the research front. I think things have kind of been progressing pretty nicely in terms of capability. But in terms of the applications, we've all seen... Recently, with uh, ChatGPT and LLMs, you'd have to be living you know, under a rock not to know about it these days. But in terms of the basic framework, nothing has really changed. I actually skimmed through it before our chat here today, and nothing has really changed about the book. <laughs> nothing, nothing I think has changed, and it seems very appropriate to the world uh, we're living in today. But I do think that I think the, the one thing that's changed is people are asking a lot more questions about what's going to happen with us and machine intelligence and machine consciousness. And so I think there might be more need for the book right now in terms of giving people an alternate narrative other than the, oh, how 9,000 is going to take over, when's it going to happen? You know, like that. There's only really that one narrative to sort of argue against. And I, I think the book now might be more timely and helpful for people by showing an alternate narrative, which essentially says, you know, we've been hybridizing for a long time. We're going to continue doing so. And, you know, this more gradualist perspective um, that, I mean, machines, in a sense, have already taken over. Uh -huh. So that's kind of how I see things have changed. You and I are talking through the screens of a machine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, a lot of our social interactions are mediated by machines. Just talking to the mouth that machines, you know, even five years ago had taken over. You know, people spending a lot of time with their their screens, and also just the number of machines that are around. If we just want to look at it in terms of a population, like how many CPUs, how quickly are CPUs reproducing at a time when the human population is, is leveling off. So um, machines seem to be very successful at reproducing machine architectures uh, with our help in this kind of symbiotic way. So yeah, and I think humans who can interact with machines, it, it, it helps us survive. And so I think our environment is becoming conditioned by these machines. Yeah, I think 
machines are domesticating us much the way cats have already done. Yeah. And, and that is kind of a worrying aspect of, you know, the embodiment of intelligence is that uh, the machines that we're building are very thirsty and very power hungry and have an increasing environmental footprint, which is a little concerning. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of other considerations about what's happening with machines, you know, like that the ecological ones being uh, very important. And I think there are also, you know, psychological considerations about social media not necessarily being healthy, especially for for teenagers. But there, there are also so many benefits that come from machines. Like we wouldn't be having this conversation without them. So I, in general, I'm an optimist about our interactions with computers. And I think the sort of increasing applicability of LLMs and the way they're transforming the market is very exciting development. And uh, I'm in general very positive about it. I'm not the type to think that we need to limit it in any way because I, I think it's actually not the technology that causes problems, but things outside of uh, technology that cause problems. Speaking of ChatGPT, one thing that skipping over Turing let you do is avoid talking about the Turing test, which I think ChatGPT4, you know, it can pass in a pretty lightweight way. Does that mean the Turing test is outdated or does that mean by the standards we've set for ourselves, ChatGPT is sentient? Yeah, I mean, I would say that a lot of things much simpler than ChatGPT are sentient. And I would even say that it's in a way less sentient than a traditional computer architecture because it has a weaker theory of mind in terms of knowing what it, it thinks. It lives in a float tank. <laughs> I think the Turing test is well passed. I think that's one of the biggest developments since I published Living with Frankenstein is that I think it's a much more difficult argument to say the Turing test hasn't been passed. And I think most people are like, kind of feel that way. And it's an exciting time to be on the other side of that. But, you know, I think for people who thought that that would be some kind of watershed moment, I mean, it must be giving a bit of pause now, right? Or maybe they're saying the watershed moments a little bit away, a little bit away in that kind of uh, messianic uh, way uh, that people who get excited about the singularity can, can be. But um, yeah, I would say Turing test is, is well past. And we're seeing not just conversation, but human-ish levels of work in so many different disciplines and also a system which is a lot better at receiving human-ish inputs. And it's an exciting development for technology and people who, who build things with it. Speaking of messiahs, this is the part of the show where I proclaim you God Emperor of Dune. You get to rule the world for the next five years. Everything goes the way you think it should go. What does the future look like? I mean, I think the future I'm most focused on is, at least with, with Mighty Meld, and building a creative tool is the future of human creativity. And if you look at human creativity with machines, certainly in, in some of the more visual realms, uh, you mentioned my PhD work in VR and creativity in VR, there is this tendency for there to be simplistic systems, like easy ways to make things that didn't really scale to complex tasks. Like VR is an easy way to build things in 3D, but if you want to do something more sophisticated, you're still doing it on a flat screen just because of that ability to control precise information. And LMs seem to be sort of bridging that gap, uh, giving people something that both can be easy for them to interact with, but also gives them something very complex, you can do with a very complex input with a lot of uh, precision. And so I think the most exciting part of, of what's happening with LLMs is creativity, uh, whether it's in building web apps, which is what we're working on, or whether it's writing or making product specs or making images. I'm just a huge fan of the arts. 
one thing I really value is in this world is creativity. I'm actually a, a bit of a nihilist, unless we're talking about creativity and the, <laughs> the internet and visual culture, at which point I get very, very excited and positive. So for someone who cares so much about creativity, it's a ex- really exciting time to see transformational technology come out. And, and we've had many transformations already, but I feel like things were, were kind of stabilizing a bit. And to see sort of fresh air come in uh, is very exciting. And uh, the other exciting thing about generative AI is that it helps humans kind of along the spectrum. And so you have like beginners and it helps them level up more quickly. And then you have people who are more advanced and it helps them flow more quickly. And it's nice to see that amplification of, of human creative ability. And I mean, just look at what's happening in music with uh, people who are experimenting with uh, sample generation and AI and creating new, new genres. By the way, it just helps you experiment and discover new sounds, which musicians are always hungry for. So five years from now, like I don't think I need to be the king of the world to, <laughs> to make that vision come true. It's just I'm very excited about it and excited to be alive and, and playing a small part uh, in that evolution. That's good because we reject hierarchies here on Generation Ship. No gods, no masters. Nice. I, I do like Jaron Lanier's characterization of an LLM as a, a library that you can talk to. It's a, it's a corpus of human knowledge that you can you can actually interact with. And I, I, I think that's... It's not exactly how they work because they're not fact-checking against reality, but I, I can see them starting to fill that role. And that's where they accelerate creativity and exactly the way that your high school librarian did. Yeah. God rest her. Marie Suching, may her name be praised. <laughs> yeah, I think the exciting frontiers around LLMs are more around uh, sort of higher-level executive functions and sort of bringing things together and uh, almost like the DJ aspect of working with that information. And I think that that's what I'm the most curious about in terms of how things are going to go. You know, I have my inclination as for how I see things will go, but it's hard to be certain with the, the rate of change these days. If you had a colony ship to visit Alpha Centauri, what would you call it? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry is your ship name? <laughs> I, you know, humans seem to, maybe I'm just colored by learning a lot about extinctions, you know, the mass extinction event we're going through and humans' tendencies to mess things up. And I think if we, we went to some distant star system, I don't know if we would be better for what's there, so. <laughs> I mean, that, that ship name does have the virtue of collapsing 200 years of Australian history from, like, white settlement to sorry day, so I'll allow it. I think that's a strong <laughs> name. Possibly... In the the Ian N. Banks tradition of very sarcastic ship names, but but yeah, yeah, or like a Douglas Adams uh, kind of <laughs> name, right? Um, I don't know if that would motivate the um, the people on the ship. And I mean, for the record, I would still love to have such a ship, but you know, either whatever we would find on that distant planet would destroy us, or we would find a way to survive and destroy whatever there, and so. I mean, probably the latter eventually, knowing us. It all comes back to Darwin in the end. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Stephen, this has been such a delight. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest or if you know someone awesome I should interview, hook up with us online. We're available where all fine social medias are sold. This show is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. 